0: church family, so good to be with you this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, please grab it and turn with me to Luke chapter 11 as we continue our study in the parables of Jesus with a message I've titled Persistent Prayer. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 11 verses 1 through 13 this morning. And I do want to just pause here at the beginning uh, just to express not only my excitement to be with you this morning, but also my gratitude to Pastor Graham for providing me this opportunity and giving me this invitation this morning. Uh, as Jonathan said, my name is Tim Matthews, and I have the privilege of serving as minister to adults here uh, at Prestonwood, and I've had the privilege of serving on staff uh, just a little over seven years. Uh, love this church, uh, and as Jonathan said, which by the way, fantastic introduction, Jonathan, thank you so much. Uh, But as Jonathan said, this church, uh, while I've served on staff for the past seven years, uh, has been a big part of my life. I actually like to tell people that my story with Prestonwood uh, actually began a little little over 20 years ago uh, as a high school student. I did not grow up in the church. I did not grow up in a Christian home. Matter of fact, I grew up in a very lost, uh, very uh, broken home. Just a lot of relational brokenness uh, surrounding uh, my family. Multiple marriages, multiple divorces, uh, and we moved a lot uh, growing up. Uh, And I was lost. Uh, I was without Jesus. But that all began to change the summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school. We moved just a couple miles here uh, to Carrollton, uh, I enrolled at Newman Smith High School, go Trojans, uh, to start my junior year, uh, and that's when God began to change things, because halfway through my junior year of high school, I was invited uh, to church. I was invited here uh, to Prestonwood, and after several months of sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's word here and hearing that gospel invitation week in and week out, on August 10th of 2003, uh, I came forward uh, after our pastor preached and shared the gospel, and I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact. Uh, I remember it uh, to this day, we were sitting right up there in that A200 section over there. I remember looking at my friend and just saying, I'm ready to surrender my life to Christ. And I walked down those stairs right there, came down right here uh, to this uh, altar, and uh, I gave my life uh, to Jesus. And then a week later, on my 17th birthday, uh, August 17th, 2003, uh, I was baptized by our pastor, And uh, my life has never been the same. As a matter of fact, as I was reflecting on that this week, uh, thanks to our awesome media team, uh, we were able uh, to find this. We have two Matthews, not brother and sister, I understand. This is Timothy Matthews. And Nicole Matthews. Nicole and Timothy, because of your professions of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is our joy now to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You got me. (laughs) I don't know if y'all noticed that, but as soon as I came out of the water, I guess my gut reaction was to shake the water off, and I got pastor wet. And uh, it always makes me laugh, because just to give you guys a little peek at 17-year-old Tim Matthews, I don't know if you noticed, but I had so much gel in my hair uh, that my hair didn't even move after I went under... (laughs) And came back up, but I'll never forget that moment. Uh, and on top of that, and this is another just amazing part of the story that I don't have time to go uh, all the way into this morning, but that high school friend uh, that invited me here to church all those years ago just so happens to still be my best friend. Uh, matter of fact, uh, she's my wife of over 15 years, uh, and that's Katie. Uh, and so there's not a Day that goes by in my life that I don't praise God for His grace uh, and giving me just an amazing friend and wife, uh, and Katie. And I was just reminded of that this morning uh, as I was about to leave. She just put her hands on me and she prayed. She prayed over me uh, that God would use me and that God would speak through me. And that's just a little picture of the godly influence that she's been in my life overall these years. Um, God's also blessed us with three amazing kids, uh, as Jonathan mentioned, Paisley, Molly, and JJ. uh, Love them. And, And the ministry of Prestonwood has been a big part of their life, too, because not only did I come to faith in Christ and get baptized here, but I've gotten the privilege of watching God move in my kids' life, seeing each of them Place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ here through the ministry of Preston Wood. And I've had the privilege of baptizing each one of them in the same baptistry that I was baptized in. And so when I say I love this church and I'm grateful for this church, uh, I mean it. And this is very much a full circle moment for me uh, in life. And I could not be more excited uh, and could not be more honored that God would have given me this opportunity uh, to share his word with you this morning. And so. Like I said, we're going to dive into Luke chapter 11. The main focus of our time this morning is going to be in verses 5 through 13, but I do want to teach all the way through verses 1 through 13, so that way we can set the scene and the context before we dive into the parable that we're going to be focusing on This morning. And if you're a note taker, I thought I'd go ahead and do you a favor. If you're a note taker or if you're a kid who has their pastor pal, I'm going to go ahead and give you uh, my four points at the beginning. I'm going to go ahead and give you my sermon outline here at the top so that way when we read it, And we begin working through the passage, you can see exactly where we're going and when we're getting there. And so here's my four points uh, up at the top. Here's what we are going to see uh, as God reveals himself through his scripture uh, this morning. The first thing we're going to see is Jesus modeling prayer. We're going to see Jesus modeling a lifestyle of prayer. The second thing that we're going to see this morning is we're going to see Jesus teaching on prayer. And so as I told you before, my sermon title this morning is Persistent Prayer. But before we talk about persisting in prayer, Jesus is going to teach us. He's going to remind us that as believers, this is how we ought to pray. And so he's going to share with us uh, the Lord's Prayer, sometimes better known as the Disciples' Prayer, with us. And the third thing we're going to see this morning is Jesus illustrating the power of persistent prayer. Jesus is going to teach us to keep praying and to never stop praying, that there is power in persisting prayer. And then the last thing we're going to see is God responding to persistent prayer. And so if you would, uh, have your Bibles open. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to work through it verse by verse uh, as God teaches us this morning. So Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Here's what God's word says. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, right? This is Jesus modeling prayer for us, and we're going to unpack that more here in a minute. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, this is him teaching prayer, and he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Verse 5, and this is where the parable starts. Here's where he's going to illustrate for us the power of persistent prayer. Verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his Impudence, and that can also be translated persistence. We'll unpack that more here in just a little bit. But because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Verse 9, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened." What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen. Amen. All right. well let's dive into this. We're going to start in verse 1, and like I said, we're just going to work through this line by line. And I'll be honest with you, verse 1 is packed full of a lot of good stuff, okay? And so we're just going to dive into it, and we're going to see what God uh, has for us this morning. So verse 1, it starts out by saying, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And I'll just point out that Luke emphasizes the prayer life of Jesus more than any other gospel writer. And this word that he uses here, praying, that we translate praying, in the original language, the verb actually carries uh, a, a meaning of continuous action. So in other words, this was a custom. This was a habit. This was a regular practice of Jesus. So we can look at this, and it says Jesus was praying. He was praying as he normally did. This was something that Jesus did all of the time. This wasn't just a one-time thing. This was the life of Jesus. Jesus lived a life of prayer. And so just a quick application point for us this morning as followers of Jesus, if Jesus lived a life of prayer, then we should live a life of prayer, right? This is what Jesus told us in Luke six forty, right? That when a disciple is trained up, he is going to be like His teacher. And so Jesus prayed, and we also ought to pray. Now there's a couple other observations I want to make here. It says, now when Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples, which we don't know which one, he remains unnamed, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his Disciples, And that's a reference to John the Baptist, who we know was a man of God. He was a man of prayer. He taught his students how to pray. Matter of fact, the religious elite that John tended to call out, right, he tended to call them hypocrites and brood of vipers, right, even those people described John as a man of prayer, that he and his disciples always fasted and always prayed, And so as I read that first verse, there's just some fantastic observations that I made and I want us to see this morning. There was obviously something about watching Jesus pray that made these disciples want to pray like him, right? His example, his relationship with the Father, his intimacy, they desired that. And here's the thing, prayer was not a new concept for the disciples. It was part of their religious background. But what was often modeled to them in their uh, broken religious system was a prayer life that was often ceremonial. It was external. It was sometimes hypocritical and even self-righteous, but not Jesus. Jesus was different. His prayers were different, and they wanted to pray like him. And so that then reminded me just of the power of example, I mean, Jesus modeled to them what a life of prayer looked like, what an intimate relationship with the Father looked like. And when it comes to discipleship, and you guys have heard this before, right? When it comes to discipleship, more is caught than is taught. So it's not just what you say, it's not just what you teach, but it's the life that you live that makes most Of the difference. And Jesus did many things while he was on earth. I mean, think about his earthly ministry. I mean, he taught, he preached, he healed, he did miracles. And here, Jesus was praying. And it was watching the prayer life of Jesus that made the disciples say, Jesus, teach us to pray like you. Teach us to have a relationship with the Father like you. Teach us to talk to God the way that you talk to God. And so I just have a couple of questions for us this morning as it relates to the power of example. Just an opportunity for us to just examine ourselves and examine our heart. As a follower of Jesus, when you examine and you evaluate your life and your witness, what kind of example are you providing? Years ago, I had a mentor ask me this question. It's a challenging question. He said, if you were the only example of a Christ follower people got, what kind of example would they get? And obviously, perfection is unattainable, but it's about faithfulness. Am I living, a faithful, am I living as a faithful witness to Christ? And here's the reality. When it comes to prayer, our prayer life absolutely reflects our relationship with God in our dependence on him. This is why when you find yourself not praying, likely you're just doing things your own way. You're doing things in your own power. You're making decisions apart from God and you're doing what you think is best. And I'm just here to tell you, it doesn't end well when you do that. We are to depend on God. And prayer comes when we fully recognize our need for God. Because prayer is the evidence that we depend on him. And we depend on him for everything. And so the disciples said, this one disciple, kind of a spokesperson for the disciples, said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And then here's what Jesus says to them in verse 2. He says to them, when you pray, and notice it says when, not if, not if you pray, but when you pray, say, and here Jesus is going to teach them again the Lord's Prayer. This isn't the first time we're introduced to the Lord's Prayer. That happens earlier in Jesus' ministry and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 6. And so Jesus repeats the Lord's Prayer. And like I said, sometimes it's better called the Disciples' Prayer because this is the prayer Jesus gives us as believers, right? This is the prayer that ties us together as a community of believers, and Jesus is going to share it with them here again, but there's a couple of things I want to point out before we dive into it. This prayer that he gives, while he has shared it before, it's a little bit different here. You're going to notice it's, it's shorter and more succinct here, which just reminds us that this prayer isn't meant to be prayed in some real uh, ritualistic way where you just recite words, right? It's the heart behind the prayer that matters. Amen the heart behind uh, your prayer to God that matters most. And so Jesus is going to give us kind of an outline, a framework. I heard one commentator say he's going to give us the ingredients of a good prayer here. And then the last thing I want to share with you before we continue, and I thought about this just the other day as I was diving into this, how awesome is God that he always provides when we ask him for help? God always provides when we ask him for help. When we want to have a deeper, more meaningful relationship with him, like the disciples did, we're going to see Jesus provide God's provision. They ask, he answers. And he answers by saying, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Which I hope is never lost on us, the fact that we get to call the God of the universe as believers, Father that we have this unique and special relationship. And it goes on to say, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed being set apart, your name being all that you are. And so Jesus teaches us when we start prayer, we begin by praising God. Because there's nobody like him. May his name be praised. May his name be honored. May his name be glorified. It's a picture of reverence and respect. And then he goes on to say, your kingdom comes. So in other words, it's not about my agenda and getting God on my agenda, building up my own little kingdom. No, it's about God's kingdom and getting on God's agenda. May your spiritual kingdom come. May you rule and reign in my heart and in my life and in the hearts and the lives of your people. Help us to submit to your will and your ways. But then it also looks forward to the full final and physical rule of Jesus when he comes back. Our pastor talked about that last week. It's anticipating the day when Jesus comes back, and I hope you're anticipating that day. And so the main point of this first part of the Lord's prayer is that our prayers should begin with recognizing who God is and worshiping him before making our requests. And then once we do that, we move into our request, starting in verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread, right? God, you're the provider of all of our needs, both physically and spiritually, and we need you to provide. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, or those that have sinned against us, right? And so this is a picture of confession of sin, so that we can maintain fellowship and intimacy with our God, because here's the truth, open, unrepentant sin Hinders our relationship with God. And so Jesus teaches us that we should walk in confession. 1 John 1, 9 If we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we live a life of confession. And not only do we confess but we also forgive. We forgive others who have sinned against us because we have been forgiven. We forgive others. Jesus commands us to forgive. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus even goes on to say that if you don't forgive others their sins, God will not forgive you of your sins. Because how can you accept the full and final forgiveness of Jesus on the cross, but yet withhold forgiveness from other people? Now, it doesn't mean that things go back to the way they were or that trust is restored, but it does mean in terms of a relationship, it does mean, though, that we must forgive. As Christ followers, we are to be forgivers. And then he ends with, Lead us not into temptation, which we know that God doesn't tempt, but he does allow us to be tested. He does allow us to go through trials. And it's not wrong to ask God, if it's within his will, to spare us from trials, to spare us from testing. But if and when we do find ourselves being tested or if and when we do find ourselves being in a trial, what are we to do? We're to ask God to give us the strength we need to keep us tied to him and not take matters into our own hands in sin. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach us there. And so that's where the prayer ends. And so in verse 5, we pick up the parable, which the rest of our time this morning is going to be focused on this parable. This is the parable of the friend at midnight. Now, there's a couple of things I want to share with us before we start this parable. And the first is, remember, a parable is an everyday story meant to teach a spiritual lesson. And all of the parables, with the exception of the prodigal son, has one main Point and the main point of this parable is persistence in prayer. That we're to persist in prayer, God desires us to live a life of continual prayer. And so, starting in verse 5, Jesus begins to illustrate for us it says, And he, Jesus, said to them, speaking to the disciples, Which of you has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. And I have nothing to set before him. And so, in other words, Jesus is painting this picture to the disciples. And they're saying, imagine you have a friend. And this friend just showed up in the middle of the night to your house. He's tired. He's thirsty. He's hungry. And he shows up. And you have nothing to provide this friend. Which in a culture where hospitality was such a big deal, this is a big deal. This is kind of, in some ways, a, an embarrassing situation for this friend. His friend just arrived, and he has nothing to give him. I mean, hospitality in this culture, you were, it was an ethical duty to take care of a guest with needs. It was a moral obligation. It was, in a lot of ways, an act of obedience to God's will. And this friend had nothing for him. And so, if you're out of something, what do you do? I mean, there's no convenience stores, right? Right. There's no 24-hour water burger. There's no DoorDash, right? So this friend shows up. What are you to do? Well, you got to go ask for some help. And so this friend goes to a neighbor, to another friend, and asks him for some help. He asks him for some food. Look at verse 7. Here's how the friend from the inside answers. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. And I'll be honest with you, I can't blame him. Because there's only been a few times in my life where someone has been knocking on my door at the middle of the night. And going back to the power of example, I'm just gonna tell you, I wish I could go back and give them Jesus, but I didn't. It's the middle of the night. And so if someone's banging at my door in the middle of the night, I'm not gonna be happy. And this friend wasn't happy. Friend shows up, he's banging on the door. Hey, help me out, I need some food. And what does the friend say? Don't bother me, the door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. So the friend says, I can't help you. Everyone's asleep. We're all asleep. If I get up, everybody in the house is up. And you got to remember, I mean, this is uh, ancient living, right? This would have been a one-bedroom home made of stone. And I was privileged when we went to Israel uh, this past winter. I got to, to see what a home like this would have looked like, right? They would have all been sleeping together in a common area. And so this friend is like, I can't help you. This is a highly inconveniencing situation. This is a highly bothersome situation, and I can't help you. But then Jesus goes on to say in verse 8, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And that word impudence that we translate in English as impudence, right? It's only the, the Greek word that's used here. It's only used once in the entire New Testament. And so the meaning that's trying to be conveyed here is a sense of urgency, a sense of audacity or earnestness or boldlessness or shamelessness. So in other words, it's not because of his, he's his friend that he responds, but it's because of his persistence, One commentator said, it's like a desperate beggar asking over and over again. So this friend just kept knocking. This friend kept calling. This friend wouldn't go away. And so what happens? Because of his persistence, the friend finally responds and gives him whatever he needs. Now, I want to just share an important note, because remember... Parables have one central meaning. So God is not the inconvenienced friend or neighbor who relents begrudgingly here. That's not the point Jesus is making. This is a parable of contrast. What Jesus is doing is he's contrasting this friend or this neighbor with our gracious heavenly father. And here's the point. If this friend or neighbor will respond to a persistent request, how much more will your heavenly father respond to your persistent request? prayer. That's the point. And he goes on to illustrate this in verse 9. He says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you and actually a better way to translate ask seek and knock there because of the original language right it's a continuous action so you can actually read it as and I tell you ask and keep on asking and don't stop asking seek and keep on seeking and don't stop seeking and knock keep on knocking and don't stop knocking it's a picture of persistence And not only is a picture of persistence, but it's also a picture of humility. This is a person that recognizes their need and their dependence on God. And so they go to God knowing that God is going to give them an answer. And he's going to answer in a way that is best for them. James 4, 6 says this way, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's a picture of humility. And the grace that God gives... Is the help that you and I need when we are persistent in prayer? Look at verse 10. It says, For everyone who asks, and remember that can be keeps on asking, doesn't stop asking, to everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Now, I do want to point out a couple things because I don't want us to to find ourselves misinterpreting or taking this out of context because there are a lot of false gospels out there that would love to hijack a verse like this. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that God will always give you exactly what you ask for. God is not a genie. He is a father, which means he is wiser and knows what is ultimately best for you. He knows all, he sees all, he sees the whole picture. This is also not a blank check, which is why we covered the Lord's Prayer at the beginning. Jesus taught us how we are to pray, and that we're to be persistent in that type of prayer. This also doesn't mean that you're to focus entirely on one request and one request only. There's nothing wrong with praying for one thing over and over again, but the focus shouldn't be on that one thing and that one thing exclusively, right? That if you just pray this one thing repeatedly, that God is going to give it to you. What Jesus is trying to teach us here is that prayer is to be an essential, everyday part of our life. That we're to pray, we're to keep on praying, and we're to never stop praying. Paul would go on to say in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that we're to pray without ceasing. God wants us to bring everything to Him in prayer. He wants to hear from you. He loves you. You're not bothering Him with your prayers. He wants your continued prayers. He wants you to keep praying. He wants you to keep coming to Him. I've heard our pastors say, Right, That prayer is its like spiritual breathing, and you must breathe to live. And God wants us to keep praying so that we can stay in communion with him. And then look at verse 11. He goes on. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And the simple principle there that Jesus is trying to teach is that no good earthly father is going to respond to a genuine need of his child by giving them something harmful and completely unhelpful to them. God's not going to mock your request, right? No good earthly father would mock the request of a child or give them something uh, that's harmful in return. Why? Because good fathers take care of their children. And if good earthly fathers take care of their children... How much more will our perfect heavenly father take care of us and ensure that our needs are met? He will. Now, sometimes that means the answer is going to be yes. But sometimes as a loving heavenly father, that means the answer is no or not right now. And we're going to talk about that more here in just a little bit. Look at verse 13. It says, If you then who are evil, and that's speaking to sinful and perfect fathers, right? Contrasting uh, that to our Heavenly Father. If you then who are evil know how to, good gifts to your, give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And we're going to come back to the Holy Spirit in just a moment. But what Jesus is trying to show us here. That when it comes to prayer, God is a good father. He loves us. He desires what is best for us. And as a good, loving, heavenly father, sometimes the best thing for us is a no or a not right now. Matter of fact, Pastor John MacArthur illustrated it this way in his commentary over this. And I wanted to share it with you. He says this. He says, If your child asks for a stone or a snake, will you give it to him? No, no matter how much he begs. Children often ask for foolish things which are withheld. The same is true with our Heavenly Father. As ignorant, willful children, we sometimes ask for things that seem to us like fish or bread, but which God knows will have the effect, figuratively, of course, of a stone or a snake in our lives. Our Heavenly Father says no not because He hates us but because He loves us. God's no is a sure sign of His wisdom and His love for us. If a five-year-old asked to play with a sharp knife, most reasonable fathers would respond with a definitive no and even let him cry and pout about it. His tears only show his immaturity and frankly, if the Father does give him the knife, it shows he doesn't really love him at all. In the same way, As God's children, believers often ask for things that might bring us harm, including even things we think are good, like a new job, a better salary, a bigger house. But God, who alone knows the beginning from the end, sees through to the end, and knows that what we have have asked for would harm us more than help us. So in his omniscient, loving wisdom, God says, no. God knows it all. Sometimes we as humans, we think and we assume that we know what is ultimately best for us or what we really need, and the truth is, we don't. We are very limited. We are finite. We are temporal. God is not. God is eternal. He knows all. He sees all. He's in control of all. He's perfectly wise. He's perfectly loving. And he knows what is ultimately best for us and what we truly need. And so what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to pray. Our responsibility is to pray and to keep on praying and to keep on praying and to never stop praying and to pray boldly and then to trust our perfect heavenly Father with the rest. That's why I love Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which says, be anxious for nothing, but with all things through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, what are we to do? We're to make our requests known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will do what? Will guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That is the peace that comes. And then here's how I want to end this sermon. Look at verse 13. Look at what Jesus says. He says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I found that to be an interesting shift in the parable. Like we go to the Holy Spirit, but here is what Jesus is trying to show us as we bring this to a close. He's trying to show us an amazing truth and reality that the greatest gift we can receive as a believer is the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the presence of God. And the power of God. And so when we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive God's presence and God's power. Matter of fact, Jesus tells us this in John 15 and 16. He even says that it's better that I go away. Because when I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And I want you to think about all the things that that you receive when you were given, or that you received when you were given the Holy Spirit. And I, I made a list here, and it's not exhausted, but just listen to this. We're convicted by the Spirit. We come to saving faith by the Spirit. We come to understand God and his word by the Spirit. We grow in wisdom by the Spirit. We're freed from sin and death by the Spirit. We're sealed for eternity by the Spirit. We're sanctified and empowered to walk in righteousness by the Spirit. We bear fruit by the Spirit. We're indwelt by the Spirit. We're gifted by the Spirit. And we're prayed for by the Spirit. And then not only that, but I want you to think about all the things we pray for. We pray for comfort. We pray for help. We pray for discernment and truth. We pray for power and wisdom and guidance. We pray for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And here's the thing. The Holy Spirit is the source of every one of those things. And so what is Jesus trying to teach us? That through the Holy Spirit, God not only provides all of these things, he provides us the source of all of these things by giving us the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So when you need comfort, He comforts us. When you need help, He is our helper. When you need discernment, He's the revealer of truth. When you need spiritual power in your life, He is the power source. When you need guidance, He shows us the way. When you need wisdom, He is the giver of God's perfect wisdom. And when we want to see and experience spiritual fruit in our life, He is the source of all spiritual fruit. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is all we need. This is why Paul can say in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we all ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. And what is that power? It's the Holy Spirit. And so in this moment, I'm just going to ask everybody with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Just like me when I was 16 years old, God's Word has been taught, and now is an opportunity to respond to God's Word. And the question that I want you to ask yourself this morning is, do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you know God as your Father? Because right here this morning, you can. Just like me when I was 16 years old. I was presented the gospel, and the gospel is the good news of Jesus, but I just want to share this. The good news of Jesus, the reason why it's good news is because apart from it, it's bad news. I mean, God reveals himself to us in his word, and he says that I'm a loving, I'm a gracious, I'm a merciful heavenly father, but I'm also just, I'm holy, and I'm perfect, which that's bad news. For sinners like us he says he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished and you know what all of us every single one of us are guilty every single one of us are sinners who fall short of the glory of God and because we're sinners because we have sinned against God that sin demands punishment separation from God not only separation from him relationally in life now but separation forever in eternity apart from him but as I mentioned before God is also loving and gracious and merciful. And rather than giving us what we deserved, what did he do? He sent Jesus to earth to live the perfect life that none of us could live, to die a substitutionary death on the cross. He died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His blood was shed. And in the shedding of his blood, our sins were forgiven. God's wrath was appeased on the cross because of the work of Christ. And three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death on our behalf. And the Bible tells us whoever would turn from believing there's anything that they could do to save themselves, turn, from, uh, turn their own ways and turn to God and trust in the person and the work of Jesus, they could be saved. And so if that's you this morning, I'm just going to ask you to pray. God. I recognize today that I am a sinner. I recognize that I have fallen short of your perfect standard. You are holy, you are righteous, and you are perfect, and I am not. And that deserves punishment. But I also know that you sent Jesus, the good news, right? Jesus to the cross to die the death that I deserve. Blood was shed to forgive my sins, and three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death on my behalf. And I want to have a relationship with you. Some of you in this room this morning, you need to be baptized, right? You've trusted Christ as your Savior, but you've yet to make him the Lord of your life by submitting to biblical baptism. The Bible teaches that baptism is by immersion, all the way under and all the way up. And so maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you need to follow Christ in obedience this morning and be baptized. Some of y'all, you need a church home. You need to make Prestonwood your church home. The Bible tells us it's not good for us to do life alone. We need each other. We need fellow believers that we're to encourage one another. We're not to forsake the gathering together, but we're to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And so maybe you need to join the church this morning. Or maybe you just need prayer. Whatever it is, we're going to have ministers at the front of each one of these aisles. The music's going to play. We're going to stand up. And I'm just going to ask you, by the grace of God, to respond. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for this time. I commit this time to you. God, do only what you, by your grace, can do. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for worship at Prestonwood. As you heard earlier, if you made a decision for Christ, please text JESUS to 74788. We would love to connect with you and give you these great resources to help you grow in your faith. One is a new believer's Bible with helpful notes to help you study God's Word. The other is a book by Pastor Jack Graham on the next steps to take as you pursue this new life in Christ. As we close, I'd like to thank you for your faithful giving to support Prestonwood and the work God is doing through our ministries. If you would like to give, text word GIVE to 74788 or visit Prestonwood.org give. It's been a joy worshiping with you and we look forward to seeing you again soon.